From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we've got Kenya's M-Pesa marking it their 15th anniversary, Russian banks turning to China's union pay in the face of sanctions, and LimeWire returns as an NFT marketplace. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 610 of Fintech Insider. My name is Guerra, and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Benjamin Ensor. Great to have you here, Benjamin. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm really, really well. Thank you. How, how was the Christmas party last night? It was good. We played bingo. Um, it was hijingo bingo. It was kind of weird, um, but fun. Yeah. 11, for, for the record, 11 of us had, had our Christmas party uh, yesterday, the week after I left London, unfortunately, but uh, I'm sure it was a good time. And of course, as always, we're joined by some very special guests. First, making a, a FinTech Insider debut, we've got Sitoyo Lopokoit, the CEO of M-Pesa. Thank you so much for joining us, Sitoyo. Again, we have some news coming up, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at M-Pesa? Uh, hi, uh, I'm Sitoyo. Uh, great to be here. It's great to make my debut. I'm the CEO of M-Pesa Africa, so we're in seven markets across the African continent and hopefully going into Ethiopia. I've been with the company for 11 years, uh, both in Kenya and in Tanzania, uh, running this wonderful product that we have that uh, transforms lives. Uh, M-Pesa is all about being purpose-led, and um, uh, we believe that if the society is successful, they will be successful. So it's always uh, purpose, people, and then we always say the profits will follow. It's a great job in terms of uh, seeing the impact uh, uh, to lives uh, from uh, both our customers and also businesses. So it's great uh, to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll get more into your news in a bit, but also making up a FinTech Insider news debut, we've got Lindsay Davis, the head of markets at Atomic. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll get to your news as well a little bit later, but can you give the audience a brief intro to Atomic? Absolutely. It's my first debut for an Atomic perspective. I actually used to be the CB Insights FinTech analyst at CB Insights, and I used to join the, the show every once in a while to talk about what was happening in FinTech. I'm a lover of data. I joined Atomic about a year and a half ago to help them build out payroll connectivity. We help consumers switch their direct deposit in an automated fashion embedded within a financial app, as well as access their financial data and payroll systems. Uh, we work with over 70 financial institutions and fintech companies, and we announced our Series B last week, and I know we'll get into that later. Congrats. All right. And last but absolutely never least, we've got a welcome return from Eric Johansson, the tech editor at Verdict. Really good to have you here with us, Eric, again. How are you, how are you doing? I've been promoted. Nice. I'm not a fintech editor. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really, ha I'm really happy. Uh, and as always, at my age, I'm always happy to be invited back to anything. So... Thank you for having me. It's also good to have a little bit of a, of a break because the last few weeks at Verdict and our sister publications at Global Data has been intense to say the least because we've been, we've been covering the UK crisis and its impact on businesses and technology communities nonstop. And it, so we have a really, really good analysis on our, web, on our website, so do please check it out. So it's, but it's good to be able to get away from that occasionally heartbreaking reporting that we've done to talk about great things like successful funding rounds and 15-year anniversaries. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And let's get, let's get into the news. So in our first segment, let's talk about 
Uh, this massive story, uh, one of the most successful fintechs in the world, I, I would say, M-Pesa, Kenya's mobile money success story, celebrates their 15-year anniversary. So Africa's first mobile payment service, M-Pesa, is celebrating their 15-year anniversary after having grown to, con to connect 51 million customers and 465,000 businesses across seven countries. M-Pesa is launched in Kenya in March 2007, originally as an idea part funded by the UK Department for International Development in partnership with Vodafone. Uh, so the fintech now processes more than 61 million transactions a day, making it Africa's largest fintech provider. And it has attracted 42,000 external developers to create additional services for the platform. With more people across Africa shifting to smartphones, M-Pesa is looking to position itself as the digital financial services provider. In 2021, M-Pesa's Africa launched the M-Pesa Super App, which provides options relating to shopping, restaurants, food delivery, transport services, government services. I've even booked a flight on it before. Really a ton of things in, in that Super App. And it's, they also launched the M-Pesa Business Super App, which enables any business on the service to run a virtual storefront through the M-Pesa network. So Satoyo, naturally we're going to come to you first. Thank you so much for joining us on this landmark anniversary. Just want to start with, with talking about M-Pesa. You've been around, like you said, uh, since 2011. What's been the biggest change in the time that you've been there? And, and what did Kenya's payments market look like before M-Pesa entered the scene? Now, I think uh, first uh, M-Pesa started in uh, March uh, 2007. Uh, and I was reminded by my colleagues that we started before the iOS was actually launched because the iOS was launched later in 2007. And um, we became a fintech before the word fintech was actually coined. And when we started, it, it was more about you know, transforming lives. It was, you know, simple send money home proposition. It was designed as a stickiness product, um, not to be as successful as, as, as it is. We're grateful for, you know, DFID, uh, UK government funding as at, at the beginning uh, just to start. But I think what the biggest thing we've sort of achieved is, you know, when we started financial inclusion was at 23%. As of the latest central bank statistics, it's at 87%. And um, I think that highest in Africa. And uh, we've now sort of moved from financial inclusion to financial health. And financial health is still below 20%. But I think uh, just uh, moving from a send money home proposition to becoming a payments proposition and now positioning to become a lifestyle uh, proposition, uh, some of the big changes that have happened. The ecosystem has definitely grown from you know, a uh, few hundred businesses to actually 2.6 million businesses that run on M-Pesa. We are now what we call a two-sided ecosystem uh, for business as well as customers. Uh, the customer side is actually no, no more than the, what we do for businesses, but I think that side is what has actually, um, during COVID, has been the biggest accelerant uh, uh, in how businesses use M-Pesa. So I think for me, uh, the ability for the first time like in 2012, for people to open a bank account uh, electronically and be able to get credit in real time and be able to save. At that time, Kenya had only 5 million bank accounts. Uh, today, over 40 million bank accounts in Kenya have been opened through M-Pesa. So it's given a bigger access to the banking. We work symbiotically with the banks. And it's now just become a huge ecosystem that over $300 billion goes in it uh, annually uh, across the system. I really like how you've you've touched on on how you've gone from financial inclusion to financial health. So just also kind of 
it's, it explains the growth of an economy, right? So um, Kenya is an up-and-coming, uh, like if I, if I just use Kenya as an example, Kenya is an up-and-coming market. Um, even in terms of fintech, there's tons of startups doing a lot of cool stuff in this space. Um, so it, it's really great to see that, that Safaricom and M-Pesa have grown with the population. Um, so just more than half of Kenya's entire GDP is now transacted on M-Pesa, uh, which is really impressive. And it's quite it's ubiquitous in your home market of Kenya. Um, and you've mentioned a little bit about uh, the expansion goals that you have. What does the future of M-Pesa look like in other markets? Which which ones are you most excited about? This week we had two milestones. So it was the birthday uh, of M-Pesa uh, for f- 15 years. But uh, we crossed 30 million uh, active customers yesterday. Uh, we just issued a press statement about about that, which is a big milestone for a country just like over 50 million uh Population, so it's it, it, it's it's a great milestone. But I think uh, while Mpesa uh, Kenya has been a success, you know, the poster child of of uh, mobile money, it's not the only one. Uh, I we went and I was in Tanzania for three years, and Tanzania has got one of the most vibrant mobile money ecosystem and interoperable because there are more players there, and Tanzania led the interoperability between networks um, uh, and payments. Uh, it's great. Mozambique is is growing, uh, DRC is growing, Lesotho is growing, Egypt, Ghana. So we see that as a big play in terms of uh, the, the new products and services. In South Africa, we've just launched under Vodapay. So with COVID, the digitization, of, I mean, the, the accelerated growth in digital services has been a, a big accelerant. And we see that on M-Pesa. But I think more importantly is on the SMEs and micro SMEs that that are now beginning to use uh, MPES in a different light. Um, and just to give an example, when we launched uh, the business app, uh, which is for SMEs and micro SMEs, today over 47% of the transactions are done on the app as compared to consumers. So businesses have actually embraced the, uh, especially remote uh, business, um, not in-stop activities, but they have embraced it more. They have... Um, uh, move their their their, their services, uh, you know, digital, and we we seeing uh, that side of the business actually accelerating faster than even the consumer side of the business. That's great. I mean, I think you you touched on interoperability as well there, and and the, this growing growing B two B opportunity. So, how do you feel about really the growing opportunity of open banking in Africa? We've seen a few startups raise some pretty impressive amounts of money recently, like this year as well, and M-Pesa is you know. Currently, I believe you have an API as well. But what are your thoughts on on the future of open banking on the continent and potentially M-Pesa's role in that? No, I think first, uh, let me start with from the African context uh, continent. It's it's great to see investments coming to Africa. It's great to see billion dollar companies coming out of Africa, and we're seeing you know this is a continent that uh, has, has a very youthful population. It's a very experimental population, their tech savvy, the digital savvy. Uh, we're seeing that and, and, and the innovations that are coming uh, into, into the continent. It, it, it's great. From us, we are a platform play. So we we believe there's more innovation outside the M-Pesa, uh, uh, my team, uh, than, than within my team. And that's why we have the open API platform today uh, where we publish our APIs and we have over 42,000 developers uh, in our ecosystem. Uh, our target is to reach 300,000 developers across the African continent playing within our platform. And this enables the fintechs to actually build solutions on top of us and leverage on the payment rails uh, that, that we have and, and, and the consumer channel that through the both the business super app and the consumer uh, super app. So you don't need to download 
uh, an app, for example, you could actually publish it, uh, quote unquote, onto the Play Store. Let me say, quote unquote, Play Store of the M-Pesa app. So this is enables other fintechs to access uh, uh, a larger customer base than they would ordinarily have. So for us, it's it's uh, it's great to see what's happening open banking, but I think it's that's just one part of it. Um, but I think it's also opening up our ecosystem in a broader way to enable uh, third parties build on top of what the rails that we've already done. Just looking ahead, um, so in just to give context, Kenya uh, is actually considering a CBDC right now. There's a CBDC debate going on. Last month, the, the CBK, the Central Bank of Kenya, issued a discussion paper assessing the applicability of CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies in the country. So they're seeking comment from the public on this technology. You know, I'm sure M-Pesa has been someone they've turned to uh, for, for comment or even for advisory. How does M-Pesa fit into the CBDC debate in Kenya? Would M-Pesa be, you know, I, in my mind, I mean, I would see M-Pesa as such a brilliant distribution channel for CBDCs, but but where do you feel that fits in Kenya's CBDC discussion? I think I think first uh, it, it's it's early days. Central bank released that document, and we are, we are going through it to understand. I think they were clear that they understand the role mobile money has uh, uh, plays uh, and, and the digital ecosystems that are already in play in Kenya. And for us, I'm assuming they'll be looking at. You know, what are the efficiencies? Maybe in areas such as interoperability and so on is what we'll be seeing it play. But if you look at MPES, it's actually, it's, it's, a, it's a digital currency in terms of for every one shilling of e-money, there's one shilling in the bank account. So it's already an, it's already an e-money. So we're already well advanced in, in that space. So uh, it, it's just to see how the central bank will look at it. But we, we engage very, very closely with them. That's something we do. Uh, the central bank knows my strategy up to 2027. They are part of when we are designing products and services. I think it's easier to work with the regulator from the concept all the way to approval. And that's how we will continue and we'll work, uh, we'll work hand, hand in hand with them as they, as they explore this area. Absolutely. Lindsay, I want to get your thoughts on this. Yeah. So prior to this, I had led open banking for CB Insights. And part of that research, I looked at how that framework was evolving. It starts in Asia, but it really took off in London and enabled the rise of challenger banks. Then in Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, you saw the fastest growing adoption rate in terms of not only the internet, but mobile money movement to his point around that. But I would say the government and their ability to open up frameworks for new fintech companies to get to market, right? Leverage an open banking system that works and say, we will adopt something similar and we're going to join the global financial innovation network to enable new companies to come to market and service it. And the amazing thing about Africa in particular is you are totally skipping a antiquated system in the branch-based you know, ecosystem that we have today in the States. But in COVID, there was no ability to go to a bank branch. And we'll get into our news later. But that was one of the things that was a tailwind for us. But if you didn't have that to begin with, there's no sort of debate around should we build branches, should we not? It's like, no, we should absolutely just start in mobile because nobody can leave their homes. So I'm very excited to see that. And also the world is finally paying attention. All right. We could really go on and talk about Safaricom and Avesa. Well, I mean, I could for hours and hours, but let, let's move on to other stories we've got going on today. So um, the next story up next is Russian banks turn to China to sidestep cutoff from payment systems. Uh, so Russian banks have been cut off from global payment networks and they're turning to China's state-owned union pay as the country tries to sidestep boycotts by Western businesses for its invasion of Ukraine. Visa and MasterCard have said that they are suspending their Russian operations and making it difficult for Russians to buy goods from abroad. The move 
by two companies goes beyond sanctions issued against many Russian banks. Russian banks Sparebank and Tinkoff Bank have also said they're considering the possibility of payment cards powered by China's union pay system. Sparebank, Russia's largest bank, said it would announce a launch date later. So Sparebank and Tinkoff have told users that they will be able to use Visa and MasterCard for transactions within Russia, but they will stop working for payments outside of the country. The Russian Central Bank has warned that all cards that are using Visa or MasterCard systems will stop working for both purchases of foreign websites and transactions abroad. UnionPay would be used in tandem with Russia's homegrown payment system, MER. I'm going to flip to you, Benjamin, about this. What are your initial thoughts when we saw this story unfold? Yeah, it's not surprising. The sanctions and the withdrawal of businesses that's come from countries all around the world, actually, you know, one point is not really about the West versus Russia. It's democracies against dictatorships. It's democracies that are restricting uh, Russia. It's, it's companies from democracies that are withdrawing from Russia, partly because their citizens are protesting. Anyway, it's, it's a logical step for, for the Russian banks, right? They've got to get some kind of access back to payment systems. Obviously, debit cards will continue to to, to work in Russia. Union Pay is the obvious alternative. Mir already had a relationship with Union Pay. So this is a logical way because it's going to enable Russian citizens to continue to make transactions in markets that Russian people can travel to. Obviously, you know, it's actually quite difficult to travel from Russia to other countries in the world because a lot of airlines have stopped flying and so on. Trade between Russia and other countries has been greatly restricted. But this will provide a way for Russian people to start paying for things internationally, or at least with businesses in China and elsewhere. Note that at the moment, most union pay transactions are actually in China. Union pay is huge, but it's almost all in China because China is huge. (laughs) The actual number of international transactions on union pay is quite small, but we could see that start to change. You're sort of seeing a division of the world's commerce into democracies and and dictatorships, um, which raises all sorts of interesting questions for the historically non-aligned countries. You know, back in the Cold War, you had India and many other big sort of southern economies saying, hey, we're non-aligned. Interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years as well. Eric, I know you've been covering this, and I'm sorry to make you talk more about it. I know you said you, you're you're happy for a break, but um, let's get your thoughts on on what these sanctions are are doing. What, what do you think is is it going to be a material impact? Is there going to be a long term impact? Like, what are you seeing um, across your desk right now about this? Well, I'm all I'm happy, happy to talk about it because it is a very important important issue. So don't feel sorry for asking about it. Uh, I think. At the moment, I mean, we have seen a decline in, the, in Russian currency. We have seen an absolute decline in the markets. However, the people I've been talking to in the fintech community and in the and, and analysts, they don't think that this won't be the thing that sways Vladimir Putin to change his ideas on what's going on in, in Ukraine. We won't make him back out, at least not now. Give it a while, and the sanction might have an, have an impact. The problem is that in the meantime people who are opposed to the war, like regular Russians, they will feel that squeeze because they can't access uh, international transactions or uh, a few of them are also outside of Russia right now and can't travel back and they can't access their their funds. So there is a problem. There is an interesting conflict here that 
I'm not the right guy to answer. It's, but an, it's an interesting question, though, whether it's, whether it's a problem. Because you're right, obviously, there is a lot of hardship that, that individual Russians will feel. But compared with what's mm. happening to Ukrainians, of course, that's nothing. And I completely agree with you. It won't have any impact on Putin. I don't think he cares, and he's not accountable to anyone. And yet, if the rest of the world is to help ordinary Russians understand what's happening, bearing in mind that ordinary Russians are cut off from the media, they're only seeing state media that is not even allowed to say that there's an invasion of Ukraine, things like this are going to cause Russians to say, hang on a minute, what's going on? How come Coca-Cola is no longer available? How come McDonald's is shutting down? How come my car doesn't work anymore? At some point, intelligent Russians have got to start saying, hang on, I don't understand this. You know, because they're being bombarded by propaganda. But at some point, you suddenly think, hang on, someone's something doesn't add up here. So somehow, maybe this will start to get the message through to ordinary Russians who up to now have believed in Vladimir Putin. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what, what I meant by saying it's not something that's going to happen in, in next week or the week after that. But in, in, inevitably, this will hurt a regular Russian on, on the street because they can't access money. They can't, like I say, go to McDonald's. And they can't access Twitter and all these social media sites that are already choked in Russia. So it will have an impact. Not sure when that's go when that is going to happen, though. And also, it's not that much of a cost for Visa or Mastercard, to be perfectly honest. I mean, Russia only represents like four percent of their of the total net revenue, which of course is more money than any of us will see in a lifetime. But for them. It's virtually nothing. And also to the point that you were making earlier, I think it's more to do with the pressure they're having in the democracies of the world because their employees in the US, in the UK, in the, across Europe, they would, would protest. Their customers in the, in the UK, in the, in, in the US and elsewhere would protest if they didn't do these things, if they didn't withdraw their services from, from Russia. So I think it's more to, in order to cater to their interest in the West rather than may, may, maybe infringing a R R Russian to some extent, if that makes sense. It, do, it does make sense. But it, it's not just the West, though. I mean, there's countries like Singapore saying this is an existential threat to us if big countries can invade small countries. So I, I, I'm just objecting to this positioning of a, about the West versus Russia. It's not the West versus Russia. It's democracies. Democracies. Yeah. Democracies. Yeah. That, that's, that's a really... Mia, mia culpa. I'll take that back. <laughs> that's a good clarification. Rather, I'm happy for you to expand upon what my lack of linguistical skills in explaining this. Always, always great. Um, Satori, I'm going to throw to you, you know, this, this specific sanction is not impacting domestic payments. So people are, you know, there's now going to be somewhat of a circular economy in Russia. Do you think that this is sustainable for the country and, and will continue to, I guess, quell the, the nation and, and, its, and, its, and its citizens? What are, what are your thoughts on, on these sanctions right now? Uh, I think first for us is um, we don't do any business directly with them. The only part that we may be involved is, is uh, what the Western Union and MoneyGram uh, do for remittances but uh, they're not they're not they're not there i think for us is uh, you know the price of oil has gone up uh we're a fragile economy from um uh, coming out of covid uh, this impacts uh, small businesses which means things like energy prices will go up and, and, and so on and so forth so it will impact ordinary citizens here uh, what's happening there uh, but i think as has as been discussed um uh, I think uh, the world needs to take a stand and uh, I think there'll be pain, but I think we need to take a stand uh, towards this. And, and I think you, you saw 
and, and for us, as I said, it's 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 we're already a fragile economy, so we'll 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 do what we continue, what we need to do to continue to empower, uh, especially the SMEs and micro SMEs uh, with financial services products that help uh, help them uh, cope. Absolutely. Lindsay, you know, do market withdrawals like this matter? Like, are we? Are you feeling the knock-on effects in New York of these these sanctions? Um, like we are in East Africa. So, for, like like Sitoya said, we've we've seen fuel prices soar here. W- what are you seeing on your side? No, we're not as fragile. So I couldn't compare that experience at all. But I would say that if we really want to make swift action here, kind of a play on getting cut off from swift, you have to hit his golden goose. Uh, Putin's went off script. It's it's out of line for, for a leader to do this with absolutely really no justifiable effort. So and if America did more to ramp up our oil production to help fill the gap where Russia could be cut off, right? That would really move the conversation along, personally, in my opinion. But I did see oil prices start to rise when I was spending time in Florida. I do not drive a car in Manhattan, no. Uh, <laughs> Not for me, but again, America is not as fragile, so it's not even fair to compare. You know, we can't we can't really talk too much more about this. We have to move on to other stories. But we, we did go into more of a deep dive. So for more financial impact stories about the invasion of Ukraine, please do listen to episode 608 of Fintech Insider for a full conversation on the sanctions on Russia and how the fintech community is looking to help refugees. Uh, so we also have content on the 11FS social channels, including a swift explainer, as well as a deep dive from my colleague Mauricio uh, into how cryptocurrency is being utilized by both Ukraine and Russia. So we're going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors and we'll be back shortly. What role will blockchain play in the future of financial services? How are innovative fintechs expanding access to online banking in Africa? And would more bankers in orange jumpsuits change the way money laundering is perceived? These are just some of the big questions you'll explore on Uncover, the Comply Advantage podcast. Subscribe today and join them for conversations featuring the latest, fast-growing fintechs, product innovations, and financial crime challenges. Just search Uncover Comply Advantage wherever you get your podcasts. It's official. The British Bank Awards are back, and we are up for both the Pioneer of the Year and Consultancy of the Year again. But we cannot get there without your help. If you'd like to have your say and vote for us, please head to bit.ly forward slash vote for 11FS. That's bit.ly forward slash vote for 11FS. You can find the link also in the description. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. Some good news today. So Atomic Land's $40 million in funding just five months after their Series A to connect banks and fintechs to consumers' paychecks. This came from TechCrunch. Atomic, a provider of payroll APIs, has raised $40 million in a Series B funding round just five months after announcing its Series A financing. Mercado Partners and Greylock co-led Atomic's latest round, which the company described as preemptive, meaning that it was not technically seeking to raise, but rather was approached by investors. So kind of like, you know, the prettiest girl at the dance. Um, It has now raised just under $80 million in total equity. The Salt Lake City, Utah-based company's API-delivered product, which focuses on payroll data, powers 70 banks, credit unions, and fintech companies such as Coinbase, Dave, and Propel. Atomic said it now serves more than 120 million Americans, or more than 60% of the country, which is 
pretty insane. Uh, so we'll come to you naturally first, Lindsay. Congratulations. What is Atomic's offering? Can you can you give us an understanding of what, what is Atomic's offering that wasn't available previously in the API space? Well, just zooming out from a macro perspective, a consumer's payroll account, so the way in which we all, most economies use payroll systems to pay a consumer, those payroll accounts hold a lot of financial data. So we believe that if it's unlocked, this could help unlock financial services for millions of consumers because that tells you how much they make. Have they had any career progression? What kind of worker they are? The rise of gigging in particular is not necessarily accounted for today when we think of a traditional credit score. And we believe unlocking this data will enable more consumers to access financial on-ramps. One of the primary use cases, which we'll get into, and that sort of preempted this round, was the ability to switch a direct deposit. Now, prior to COVID, people might not have been so concerned with going over to HR and asking them to switch their primary bank account or going to a bank branch to get a switch direct deposit form. Well, that all went away during COVID. Neobanks in particular have always had a digital first experience and have recognized that being top of wallet requires having a direct deposit because that is a leading indication of being the primary bank account. We created a simple API that aggregates access to over 450 different payroll systems that cover about 75% of the workforce or 125 million employees. And that use case in and of itself was viral enough to get us to this stage. The verification of income and employment was a obvious fast follow on cross sell opportunity for us and then have started to innovate around the ability for consumers to access earned but unpaid wages as well as to make payments out of their paycheck which from a borrower and a lender perspective enables lower interest rates as well as for a lender to say the higher propensity to repay this debt because you're linking it to your paycheck higher willingness to repay which is something that we measure here absolutely and you know this is this is essentially open banking right so in the states in, in Europe we, we wish well i mean giving ac- like access to to pay payroll data is just you know i i think of open banking as like a keyhole that you let people peer through um to see things that they couldn't previously uh, that sounds weird but <laughs> that's kind of what i mean yeah it does <laughs> Thank you, Eric, for not holding back ever. <laughs> I thought of a movie, very classic, cult classic in the keyhole oh, geez, space. Yeah. And I was going to ask, I was going to say, so like that use case is, is incredibly valuable, so much so that you've, you've had to raise preemptively. So what does that conversation look like, like within with VCs actively approaching you? What what did that look like um, within within the Slack channels of, of, uh, of Atomic? Our founder and CEO, Jordan Wright, and our co-founder, Scott Weinert, our CTO, they had previously co-founded a business together in the fintech space called Unbill, which they then later sold to Q2, which is a banking infrastructure provider, or BAS, as we now have modernized the term. So they had a track record already for being fintech entrepreneurs, as well as successfully exiting. They had experience with financial services and institutions. So I think we all understand that during COVID, the ability for venture capitalists to go meet companies was hamstrung. So initially, they weren't doing remote-first deals, but... For a serial entrepreneur to be raising, if they were out fundraising, it's it's an easier point of validation for that VC to be able to do networking and back-channeling. Mercado is one that came on board as part of this round, and all of our existing investors participated in this round, which is it's really validating for us. They all came to the table. But Jordan's philosophy on this is ultimately you raise money when it wants to be raised. So it wasn't a decision for us to say, like, should we or should we not? It was an opportunity to work with a really awesome growth fund that Jordan had known prior to COVID. And having that relationship is one that was valuable from our perspective as well, because we knew them and we wanted to work with them. 
So in light of other funding rounds that have happened in our space, it's sort of one of those things. And then, of course, the tension in Russia and Ukraine, it was absolutely the right move, but certainly very fast follow on from the Series A, as you noted. Brilliant. And and that gives you the opportunity to really compete with some some big players in the space. So like, could Atomic compete with the likes of, of Plaid, for example? Um, so I know that you don't currently directly compete with them, but they're best known uh, for financial APIs as well. But Plaid's products are used for linking consumer bank accounts to financial service products, like I said before, open banking. But is this funding and is this is this momentum going to spur you guys on to compete with the likes of Plaid and, and, and other large APIs? No. We're going to stay laser focused on what we're building, which is payroll connectivity. That in and of itself is a full-time job. You highlight open banking, but in America, we don't have such a framework. So fintech companies have to go be scrappy. Plaid is one that had to innovate in that arena when they were cut off from API access. You can't do that in Europe. There's open banking for a reason. You have to build open APIs and you get certified to access those APIs. But we haven't had that happen here yet. I'm optimistic as 1033 of Dodd-Frank enables the CFPB, the major financial body that oversees consumers' rights, to access that financial data. But it's been a decade in the making. We are now seeing that move forward. It will likely start with banking data, because that's certainly something that the executive order last April from President Biden called out. However, we believe payroll data should be included in that definition. And we wrote a letter about this to the CFPB as they consider this, because open banking would be a huge boon for us. However, we haven't had any issues in that scenario. Granted, we are not trying to extract a relationship from a payroll provider, which is different than a bank. If you're getting data from that bank account, you could be building a competitive service. We're actually really augmenting the scope of what a payroll system can do and pushing it further than what it was built to do in the gig economy scenario. Because again, it's either part-time, full-time. Well, gigging could be my full-time work. How hasn't there been a payroll system designed and developed for that? If it's going to be a primary, you know, even if it's just a side hustle scenario for consumers and people that became solo entrepreneurs during this period of time, we are helping advance that. So I view, to your original point, Plaid opened a door and a window for people to build and see the value of APIs, and banking has gone a, a lot further. I think it's happening in, in Africa much faster, frankly, but we can get into that another day. It has been a model for us and also of, of what not to do um, in terms of consumer privacy and protection, letting them always know what they're doing, permissioning access. We are all very, very much in the space of consumers should know what their usernames and passwords are being leveraged for, how they're being stored, secured, wiped, building out password lists or password agnostic solutions, because most consumers don't really know their usernames and passwords to a lot of things. Payroll in particular is, is a pain point. If we can help them set that up on the fly or log in without that because they're using a biometric authentication from their cell phone, why not? I, empowering the user, definitely. I, like, I'm going to flip to you, Benjamin. Um, is payroll data underutilized? Um, and in the research that you've done, have you found that, you know, is there a lot trapped in, in, the, in the fact that like a lot of payroll data is just inaccessible right now? And what can be unlocked through Paytrex? Yeah, I mean, I think Lindsay hit on it really well with, you know, what she was talking about, about sort of gig economy workers in particular, but also, you know, other other workers who um, 
don't necessarily have access to credit when they need it, um, find it, can find it difficult to borrow and so on. If you can get access to that credit data, you can get access to that credit history, you can get a better sense of who that customer is. You know, the US credit rating system is a bit broken. It was designed years ago. It doesn't work. There are, there's a huge need for better alternatives in the United States. Now, if you can use payroll data to get an accurate, up-to-date understanding of someone's income, suddenly you can see who's a good credit, who's who's likely to pay you back, who isn't, and so on. So I think it's a, I think it's a fantastic opportunity. I slightly disagree with Lindsay on not competing with Plaid. I'm sure that, that Atomic has no intention of competing head on with Plaid. But you know, they're in a similar category. Could those two companies be combined at some point? I'm sure we'll see lots of companies using a- APIs from both of them. You know, there's a logic to those two companies potentially coming together at some time. They don't necessarily have to, but you know, I think they are they're in a s- related spaces, and they can probably play very nicely together. They might become friends, um, or they might become competitors. Who knows? But I think they are in a similar similar space. You're not far off. I just personally <laughs> don't. I have learned so much. I've had good friends at at Plaid help me make the decision to join Atomic because one of the things as a CB Insights analyst that I was scared of losing was my ability to see across fintech, not only from a vertical perspective, but a global perspective. I have lost some of that edge and that's okay. However, our customers are straddling wealth management, crypto, all different use cases and categories and we're helping build new technology. And that was one of the questions I asked friends in particular people at Plaid because it was a very similar scenario. I was like, it was one of the most interesting things when you join Plaid that you didn't know how the product was going to be ripped from you and taken and built. And they said, yeah, and it went so fast. And, and that's one of the things I got excited about, the ability to help vulnerable consumers across financial pain points via our customers and bring banking into what should be the future. You're not off at all, but it won't be us. <laughs> I, will, I will tell you, it won't okay. be us from that perspective. It's our, it's our, it's our founder's second companies. Like they're in this to impact things. And if you give away your platform for change in the world, where are you actually going to be? That's a great point. Um, and thank you for that really di- like diplomatic response, Lindsay. I love it. All right, let's move on to the next story. So Money Transfer Fintech launches in London to take on the likes of Wise and PayPal. A new Money Transfer Fintech is looking to snap up market share from Wise and PayPal after launching in London with a fresh $4.5 million funding round. Atlantic Money, which offers a fixed fee of £3 for money transfers, as opposed to the sliding scale of its competitors, said that the big players in money transfers were hitting customers with unjustifiable fees, and it was looking to provide a remedy for that. Atlantic founders have got $4.5 million in backing from some of the UK's leading early-stage VC firms, including Amplo, Index Ventures, and 20VC. Atlantic Money was founded by Patrick Kavanagh and Niraj Baid. Kavanaugh was Robinhood's first angel investor, and Bide was one of the first engineers. To find out more about Atlantic Money's issues with the current unjustifiable fees and what they plan to do differently, we reached out to the CEO, Patrick Kavanaugh. To clarify, the fees are unjustifiable for the customers we are targeting. These customers are people who have strong ties abroad and often send larger amounts of money for various reasons, like paying bills and moving money between bank accounts. The most important observation we made in our research is that not all customer outcomes are fair right now in money transfer. The pricing is as follows. Either existing options charge you a percentage fee that is disclosed, or they hide it in their FX markup, and sometimes both. Which means practically, the more you want to send, the more you're going to pay in fees. For customers who are sending larger amounts, they're currently paying most of the fees for these businesses, which is a bit shocking, and they're probably not aware. 
based on our research looking into what it costs large institutions by comparison, their pricing for money transfer and conversion is actually fixed. So it didn't make any sense to us why retail customers should get a different deal. Customers should be entitled to a service where the pricing is in line with the true cost, which is what Atlantic delivers, a flat three-pound fee with no FX markup. No matter how much you send, and you can send all the way up to a million pounds, you're going to be paying the same exact three pounds. Equally important on the product side, we're not trying to be everything for everyone. We are not a super app, and we will never be one. Atlantic Money was built to help people send larger amounts of money conveniently and cost-effectively. We will focus on these customers and serve them better than anyone else. There will be no fancy features, no super apps, no buttons to sell you car insurance. Just one thing, money transfer that works really well and is fairly priced. So I'm I'm not a money transfer expert at all, but I'm going to flip to you, Satoyo. The idea, the concept of a flat fee for money transfer, is that sustainable? Is that How did you feel when you f- first heard this story? I mean, it's, I think f- uh, for international remittance, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, one is uh, inter- international remittance, especially, um, I said, to the African continent, it could average more than 10% of the value going through it. So uh, a fixed fee works, uh, at least a customer now knows uh, what they're going to pay for that. But I think having... Uh, you know, 15 years of, of tra- how we make our money through transaction uh, fees, uh, we've seen that actually go lower. Uh, for like remittances uh, on M-Pesa, we, we, we align it to the SDG goal of 3% and below. So that's what we've managed to, to push down to. But I think uh, we are moving away from transaction fees or looking at moving away from transaction fees. Um, and the reason is customers are getting more more savvy uh, if you before probably you're using mpesa twice a month to send and uh, to send money or to buy airtime now you're using it five six times a day now whether it is uh, one shilling it'll be 10 shillings <laughs> that day time started and it, it starts adding up uh, quite quickly so i think for us uh, that's why you see you saw us going into the super app and, and being a place to, so we want to provide value to businesses so uh, if i can push McDonald's says, let me just give a quote uh, through the app and, and, and they get more customers and they're able to market better and they're able to pay for, you know, from a B2B standpoint between ourselves and themselves. And let's say we get uh, for any, we can't, we do a deal where there's 10% discount to the customer. Uh, we may keep 2% and give 8% cash back to the customer. Then it's valued for the business and then such a transaction could be free for the customer and they're getting back a cash back. So, it, it, it's switching those models from uh, fee-based to, to value-based, uh, I think, for us is, is, is the next step. And you'll be, you're seeing our, our revenue profile even for M-Pesa beginning to shift where, you know, before it was over 90% is, 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 is via transaction fees. You're seeing that model um, uh, shift. So because we average roughly about 20 transactions per customer per month. Uh, so transaction fees uh, are something that we... Uh, can rack up in pricing. So, I mean, in terms of the value customers paying. So for us, it's, it's because of our size, uh, we're beginning to shift uh, our business models. But I think it's great for, for somebody, if you're just doing payments and you know your, 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 the, the, the fee is flat, then it may, it may work. Uh, yeah. I'm going to flip to you, Eric. Are money transfer fees unjustifiable, as Atlantic Money says? Well, it depends a little bit on how often you do it. If you, if you do it once in a while to send over to for a travel or for your business, yeah, 
maybe it rakes up, rakes up quite quickly, like you said, but it's all very contextual. Um, but it's very much on the on the person, but it's very much on the on the business. Uh, the thing that I'm a bit curious about with it, with, with this company is the fact that you're saying that this is what we're going to do. We're going to do one thing and one thing only: transfer money. And that I'm not sure about you guys, but that your son, to me just kind of sounds like they're gearing up to be acquired at some point. Yeah, I I think it's really odd because they're they're sort of criticizing other businesses for doing other things to generate revenue. But as Sitoyo was just saying, you know, you've got to make your revenue somewhere, right? It's, you're not a charity, right? You're not doing this for free, so you've got to make your revenue somewhere. So if you're not going to sell other services and provide other value services, and you're not going to charge fees, well, it, it doesn't quite add up. Also, there's another odd thing here. That some, of these, some of these people have come from Robin Hood, right? Robin Hood is a business that's famous for hidden fees, payment for order flow, which is you know, illegal in a number of other countries. It's legal in the United States. They're not doing anything wrong, but hidden fees. So they come out of a business with hidden fees, and then they're attacking other businesses for not making it completely clear how the pricing works. I don't know. It doesn't quite add up to me. It just feels like a bit of marketing spin to me. It doesn't... Are you saying up. that a new startup would ever put in a marketing spin on, on something that might change it's the mind? It's totally appalling. Just so you know, tra- traction. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think that would. I, I never heard anything like that. Lindsay, what are your, what are your thoughts? I think from an early stage startup perspective, their laser focus is something that other entrepreneurs can take in, in value. You've got four million of capital. You should not be going into neo banking, especially when the challenger bank market in Europe is where it all really took off. If, if from that perspective, Satoya literally highlighted on what you need to do when you reach a certain level of scale, you need to figure out what is a recurring and consistent business model versus a one-time transaction. Switching a direct deposit doesn't happen all the time. We can start to create fractional revenues. We can start to enable payments from paychecks. That is getting consumers into a more cons- like recurring and consistent business model for us. However, in this scenario, I did like the idea of being an acquired sort of target, but I the quality of the investors that they've brought on board do not suggest that. Index plays big. Adian, they play big. They don't go for these quick, fast exits, and they're known for their great fintech portfolio. It's one I've admired. So I wouldn't think that that is something that they would back out of the gate. I am curious, though. My, I, I think in this scenario, it would be a customer acquisition play. So leverage this as a feature if you don't have the ability to transfer money. And instead of using something like Wise, because Wise is now sort of competing in that market with their own cards, you would say, all right, we are going to stay myopically focused on being this B2B provider of a money transfer service, and we're not going to charge you. But we will absolutely make fees in other ways, whether that is on the spend that then happens on the cards what we do it here is called interchange. That's how most con- like consumer fintech apps make money when they give the deposits to a partner bank because they can't hold them and lend out for interest. So I have to dig more into this business, but I'm very curious about it. You're you're right though. It does seem a bit of intense marketing. Like he has a brand and like that is it. But I, I admire the focus. Yeah. All right. And uh, focus, let us focus on uh, the next segment, which is, uh, I thank you for my transitions, I know. Um, so this is our segment we, t- we call Stories We Didn't Have Time to Cover. So in this part of the show, we we quickly round up some stories uh, from the week that we didn't really have time to cover in the show, but they, stu- they do still deserve a shout out. So Benjamin, do you want to get us started? Yes, thank you. So Indian fintech Cred Avenue has become a unicorn with a fresh ra- funding raise of $137 million. 
Uh, Cred Avenue is a debt marketplace which helps businesses and enterprises secure debt from lenders. It's become the fastest Indian fintech startup to join the Unicorn Club. The two-year-old startup raised $137 million in Series B, led by Insight Partners, B Capital Group, and Dragoneer. The round values Cred Avenue, which was founded by Gaurav Kumar at $1.3 billion, up from about $410 million in September last year. Cred Avenue says it has built India's most comprehensive technology stack to meet businesses' complete debt cycle from dispersal to collections. I think that was probably from their press release. Um, it operates platforms for giving term loans and working capital solutions to enterprises, um, creating an origination platform for banks and non-bank financial institutions to partner for co-lending and a bond platform for helping institutional and retail participants with bond issuance. Um, so fabulous story. India, obviously, huge economy, um, huge number of small businesses. I mean, anybody who's been to India will know that like almost everyone seems to run their own, their own small business. But just like in many other economies, including Kenya, as, as Satoya was just talking about, it's tough sometimes for those businesses to get funds. It's hard to understand uh, their profile and so on. So uh, fantastic to see marketplaces arising that are making it easier for small businesses to get funding, to grow, and so on. So not surprising that it's become a unicorn. Fa fa fabulous opportunity and good luck to them. For a bit more on Indian fintech, if you're interested, listen to episode 581 of Fintech Insider Insights, where we asked, is Indian fintech coming of age? And dug into that market. Next story is a new roadmap has been unveiled to take Scottish fintech from strength to strength. Fintech Scotland has unveiled the UK's first ever 10-year roadmap for research and innovation to drive growth in the Scottish fintech sector. The plans pledge to deliver an additional 20,000 jobs and a fourfold increase in gross value. The document was published on the one-year anniversary of the British Her Majesty's Treasury commissioned review of UK fintech, led by Ron Khalifa, calling for the development of regional fintech clusters in the UK. Scotland has already developed as a fintech hub with particular specialisms in open banking, climate fintech, payments and reg tech. To find out more about this roadmap, we reached out to Nicola Anderson, CEO of Fintech Scotland. We're delighted to have published the Research and Innovation Roadmap last week. It's a combination of work that we've been doing across the last couple of years, and it really helps us to deliver against some of the recommendations in the Khalifa Review. We're confident it provides a framework created by industry that really demonstrates the priorities. And with that, it enables confidence for real and responsible innovation. Actions will be progressed through two key types of activity. We'll be driving innovation calls where there's a clear articulation of the problem and we will progress faster by working together, big and small, collaborating. We also see the second opportunity through research with real interest in the application of new and emerging technologies as we understand them better. We'll start with a series of innovation calls. We'll focus on financial well-being for citizens, building resilience now and for the future. And we'll really think about the SME market, how fintech innovation can support the economic recovery and drive better outcomes across businesses. We'll also be thinking about innovation calls in the climate finance space. We really look forward to collaborating and working with many on this. And I'll look forward to providing more updates soon. Thanks. So 
Super interesting story. Uh, Scotland has a strong reputation, particularly Edinburgh, in areas like uh, fund management. And there's a, a real logic to climate uh, as a focus for Scotland, given the oil industry, but also growing amount of wind and other energy uh, in Scotland. So fantastic to see. Uh, UK is a bit London focused. Very happy to see that being reduced by growth elsewhere in this country. All right, so let's bring everyone back. Thank you, Benjamin, um, for our final story of the week. And this is our end finally story. And finally, LimeWire announces a comeback as a Web3 NFT marketplace. Not sure if everyone remembers LimeWire. They were pivotal in my teens. Um, so peer-to-peer share, file sharing platform LimeWire is set to relaunch in May as a digital collectibles marketplace for art, entertainment, and music. The platform gained notoriety in the 2000s as a place to download music and other files outside of mainstream channels uh, for free. Uh, LimeWire's intellectual property and other assets were purchased by Austrian brothers Julian and Paul Zaitmar uh, last year and who now plan to relaunch it as a platform to make music-related NFTs more accessible. Music-related assets will include limited edition pre-sale songs, unreleased demos, graphical artwork, exclusive live versions, as well as digital merchandise and backstage content. There is no crypto wallet prerequisite and users will be able to purchase collectibles directly via credit card or a debit card um, or bank transfer and other fiat gateways, thanks to a close partnership with the payment platform Wire. All right, Lindsay, you laughed when I mentioned that LimeWire was uh, free 99 um, when I when we used to use it. Uh, what are your thoughts on hearing this story? I mean, this I used to get. I used to get my music, and then Sorry, I, I rap a lot for, of band tees. For, for context, <laughs> Lindsay's wearing a Spice World shirt, and it looks amazing. Thank you. Well, you know, Women's History Month in honor of having International Women's Day this week, and also our lovely hosts of ties. So I thought it would be relevant. However, it is how I used to download music on the internet as well. And I remember trying to kick my brother off downstairs when we had a dial-up computer. I think that this is one of those scenarios where if we zoom out broadly, it's it's about artist rights. You've seen Taylor Swift obviously take command of the space as well as Beyonce, Tidal. There's abilities for artists to monetize and create an experience for their bands in a real way. So I like this application of NFTs. I'm still personally skeptical about the absolute like ability to unlock, you know, next generation of financial services when, you know, 98% of the wealth is roughly held by 9% of the people and it's largely not representative or diverse. So the vote is out right now. However, if you've got certain artists bringing in their talents and signing up for this and you've got people with loyal fan bases like the Swifters, I could see potential applications. And Snoop Dogg has already been doing this on Clubhouse during the pandemic. He was releasing tracks and he's been very adamant about NFTs and bringing people into the ecosystem very early on. So it's not totally novel, to be quite honest, but I am interested to see why 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 repurpose LimeWire? There's something more to the story. Why not start fresh, you know? Eric? Yeah, I'm pretty... I actually didn't remember LimeWire because I'm Scandinavian <laughs> and we used the Pirate Bay that... <clears throat> so... Um, I mean, I uh-huh. never did. I just knew that you could. Oh, you never broke the rules. <laughs> of course not. I never did. On the record, I did not use it. Oh, of course not. Of course, of course not. Not even 20 years ago. I used it. No, of course not. But like I kind of said, it is an interesting opportunity, just like Lindsay said, because we are all seeing a lot of people being interested in using NFTs to get artists out of the, quite honestly, the raw deal that they already ha- they, they have today, that they can't get paid for, for their art. But... 
they have to kind of move quite quickly because Patreon has been talking about it. You, we have and we have we have seen t- title. We're expecting to get hear about them launching their NFT solution anytime soon. I mean, Jack Dorsey was talking about it already back in June last year. So we are expecting other people, quite big players, to get into this scene. So sure, LimeWire could be the the people who kick it off. But they need to get some traction quite quickly. Otherwise, the big guy is going to come in and eat their lunch. Has anyone had a laptop or a computer, family computer die from LimeWare? Uh, yes, my parents were not happy about it. <laughs> but yes, uh, definitely LimeWare was, was... But you never used it. I, oh yeah, I never used it. Me, not me. My, my siblings, <laughs> maybe. Um, yes, she's my, an my only child. Me. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, we actually um, we we polled the, our audience which songs would make an ultimate limewire playlist on Twitter. Please go check out that thread; it's so interesting. We've got the likes of Soldier Boy, Papa Roach, Limp Biscuit, Pendulum. Oof, yeah, it's just a nice throwback to the two thousands uh, or the what the British call the noughties. So this is this wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to our guests today. Where can people find out more about you, Lindsay? I'm on Twitter, LC Davis. 1225 or lindsay at Brilliant. Eric? Well, you can always uh, go to vertical.co.uk and check in our latest writing at, at, for, my, for myself and team. Or you can just follow me on Twitter at Eric Johansson LJ. Awesome. Uh, uh, you can follow, us on, uh, follow me on Twitter at Sitoyo uh, and also on LinkedIn. Uh, we've got a page for Empress Africa as well as my own, my own page. Thank you. Benjamin? I'm on LinkedIn or 11fs.com. As for me, 11fs.com, check out our ventures page. We've got a lot of cool stuff going on. Um, I'm also on the Twitter website uh, at NotWera. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Uh, join into the conversation on social media uh, or email us at podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.